We had started a series last week called The Bible in Color. The Bible in Color. And I would like to continue that here this morning as well as into all of September. And what the series is all about is how there are a number of, of um, scripture passages that a lot of us have a tendency of seeing exclusively in black and white. They don't really make sense to us. And yet the great danger is a lot of times when we see certain things in, in scripture as being black and white, much of the time what is going on is we are going to just one, maybe two passages in a chapter. We're isolating that from its context and we're making it all to mean something that it never would have, have ever been intended to ever actually be expressing in Scripture. And what we will look at this morning is a passage where the only time that I've ever heard it quoted, cited in any conceivable way, was extremely out of its context. Really, in fact, the only way that I've ever heard this verse ever referred to was when it was being used as a mechanism of shame for anybody who was not at a worship service the week before. And what's rather interesting about the way this has become a proof text is that it's not even quoted all the way. It's, it's usually just maybe four words that I've heard quoted. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I imagine everybody here knows exactly the verse that I'm going to. Hebrews chapter 10, and starting in verse 25. And, and really how this is quoted, at least in my church experiences, has been don't forsake the assembly. Don't forsake the assembly. And where this comes from is Hebrews 10 and verse 25, which says this, and I'll just read the part that, that is always quoted. Not forsaking our own assembling here together. That is what I've always heard. And so... How this has been applied throughout a very long time, at least in the America church, is that here is church X over here. There's a woman in this church whose name is Jean. And so maybe others in this church might realize, well, well, here's Sister Jean. And Sister Jean was not at two Wednesday night services so far this month. And so we need to pull Sister Jean aside and say, hey, Sister Jean, stop forsaking the assembly. Or might have another guy in that church whose name is Ron. And, well, last week Ron was not here on Sunday night church. And so we need to pull Ron aside and say, hey, Ron, you need to stop forsaking the assembly. Well, would you care to learn why I wasn't there? Well, why weren't you there? I had strep throat? Doesn't matter. Hey, it says right here, thou shall not forsake the assembly. And I mean, usually it's well-intentioned in churches. Other times it's not so well-intentioned when we go to this verse and the way that we use it. But throughout my life, I've seen a tragedy with this verse because a lot of people go to this verse and they use it as a proof text. And when we use verses as a proof text, it cheapens it. It reduces it to being nothing but this black and white argument point that we use from Scripture. And yet the whole reason why I, I want to have this series on the Bible in color is, is I don't want to see Scripture in, in, in just black and white. And yet I want to open up Scripture and to have all of these things unfold to me in full, vivid, HD color. 
Really, the problem with this logic of using this verse in this manner is, I mean, there are a lot of problems with this logic. Really, the first thing that jumps out of my mind is that first century churches met literally every single day of the week. And so in that sense, anybody who's going to go to this one verse and call someone's Christianity in the question, really they themselves are, are also just as guilty if we're going to be that technical about it. So-and-so only came one week last, or, or one day last week instead of two. Well, first century Christians might look at us and say, they're only coming together once or twice a week in America, but we came together every single day of the week. And yet, really another problem with this theory, though, is that as I expressed last week in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as it pertains to women in the church, these letters that we read and these books that we read in Scripture, it's so easy for us to read these and to picture American cathedrals with steeples in our minds. And yet the book of Hebrews was not written to the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1999. You know, it's funny in retrospect that, that for my entire childhood, I, I looked at this verse and in my innocence, I, I actually thought, well, don't forsake the assembly. This means that you have to go to Sunday night services, that you have to have a Wednesday night service at your church. And I thought that's what that meant. Now, it's good that, that any church might have a Sunday evening and a Wednesday night service. That is wonderful. Is that a requirement of Scripture to have two services on Sunday? No, that is an American invention. And it cannot be held over somebody's salvation if they merely come to one worship service on Sunday as opposed to two or three. Another problem with this logic is that Again, when I was younger, I used to have this image in my mind, and it's laughable now. I just imagine God somewhere up front, and he's taking a role like a high school chemistry teacher. Okay, Jerry's here, and Don is here. Wait a second. Ruthie came in three minutes late. I'm going to have to give that girl a detention. Is that how God operates when we come together? Of course not. You know, what I realized is some people actually have to work on Sunday. I mean, there are some people who, who they don't want to work on Sunday, but sometimes the only way that a person can, can, can um, live and pay their bills is occasionally they have to work on Sunday. And I know this is going to sound very crazy, but sometimes, get this, sometimes people get sick. I mean, just last night, my, my own wife had a very long and rough night. I said, honey, stay home. I'm a preacher, and I told someone to stay home from church. Why? And that's because if she is contagious in any way, I don't want everyone else getting sick and having nobody here you know, on um, one week from today. If you're sick, stay home, rest up, and do not share your germs with, with you know, everybody here. Of course, my wife is married to me, so I still might get it, but still, I don't want you getting it. I'm looking out for you guys, I think. And yet, in many circles, though, especially in our own um, tribe in the church, it seems like we have just have developed a bad habit about going to this one verse in Scripture and making this one verse as a means that I can guilt trip you into coming to every single 
um, event, every single time that door is open, you had better be here. Your salvation is riding on it. Now, obviously here at this church, we don't have Sunday night or, or, or I'm a Wednesday night service, but I'm telling you guys, I've worked in the East Coast, I've worked in the West Coast, and it has been the same every single place. We, we have to have a Sunday night service. We have to have a Wednesday night service, or God is going to smoke us. That is not the case. Now, last week what we saw is when we have a passage of Scripture that is black and white to us, really the way that we began seeing its pigmentations and its colors slowly coming into um, um, view for us clearly, is we have to ask very, very important questions. And the questions that we need to ask ourselves specifically about the book of Hebrews is, what did all of this mean for the original people who would have heard this for the very first time? We need to ask ourselves, you know, why specifically is this being written to these specific people? That's because verse 25 is one very small microscopic piece of a far larger um, picture and of a puzzle. And so this morning, what I hope to accomplish for, for you as well as for, for um, I, everybody watching, is that we can see color in this passage and we can put all of its pieces clearly together in place. And yet I would say the most important question as it pertains to Hebrews chapter 10 that we absolutely must answer is what is the backstory here? What is going on in the book of Hebrews? And of course, there is some things unknown about this book that we will never know. You know, for instance, we, we are never going to know who actually wrote Hebrews. There are, there are a lot of people who say, well, well, of course, it's the Apostle Paul. Others say, well, it's Luke. I've heard others say that even it's Apollos, perhaps. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But if you read this book, it's very clear that it's written to primarily, if not exclusively, Christian Jews living in the first century, most likely living still in Jerusalem right before it fell in um, a year of AD 70. And so this is more or less 30 years after um, Acts chapter 2. I mean, this is the book that is so fundamentally Jewish, it's called Hebrews, right? And so this is what this book is about. So when we read this, we need to understand that here is a nationality of people who have spent 1,500 years living under the law of Moses. As I expressed a moment ago, these are most likely people who were actually there on the day when the church started in Acts chapter 2. Many of these people, if that's true, would have been among that number who were baptized into Christ, who were part of that 3,000 number. But more specifically, these are people who have endured unimaginable torment and suffering for being a, um, a Christian. These are people who have been publicly humiliated in a civic arena. Brothers and sisters of ours, some of which who have gone to um, jail for simply being Christians, many of these people have lost literally everything that they had owned, or just about everything that they owned. And so here's a picture of Christians just like us, only they are living in the society where the very thought of Jesus the very thought of, of anyone who is following after Jesus. Every single day that you set foot outside of your house, you are scorned. You are ostracized. You are spat upon everywhere that you go. This is the world that they're living in. 
It's a world so severe with pain and suffering that it's even extended into their own households. If you were a Christian living in this time, but your mom and dad was not, that created all kinds of problems for you. Really, this is what Jesus means. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus is saying in the Gospels when he says that, that I've come to turn a man against his son. I've turned, or I have come to turn a, a woman against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are going to be the members of his own household. This is what is going on for these Christians still to this day. And yet, it's remarkable, though, because they have withstood all of these attacks upon them. They have woken up to this reality every single day for the past 30 years. All of this mistreatment they have withstood with a smile and with a song. And yet all of these years later, though, all of those beatings, all of those mistreatments that they have received, all of this, this relentless civic shaming, it's all getting very, very old for these people. And now being, being a, a Christian is really starting to wear out its welcome on them. You see, the spirit of these Christians now has shifted to, Lord, we are your people no matter what, to, to now. Man, forget this. They're, they're, um, and the solution that they have arrived at is, we need to get rid of Jesus. We need to quit being Christians. We need to go back where we once were and revert back into Judaism and once again rely on our salvation in the law of Moses. You see, the problem is when, when all of their um, bruises start taking on a purple hue, when yet another lifelong friend is now ostracizing them and excommunicating them from their life, when being a Christian suddenly doesn't feel so wonderful to them anymore, there has always been something within us and, and mankind throughout the ages that, that is calling us to return back to who we once were before we were Christians. I mean, how many times do we read about the Israelites in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, once there is any kind of discomfort or, or, or of um, a um, test, saying, we need to go back to Egypt. Slavery was rough, but at least we could eat until we had hungered no more. We've got to go back to Egypt. And as we read Hebrews, what we need to understand about these Christians is that these are Christians who want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Judaism, go back to the law of Moses. This is really what the context of this audience is. And yet the Hebrew writer all throughout this book, what is he saying? Jesus is far superior to what we came up with in Judaism. He's saying that Jesus created a better covenant than the old covenant. He offered a better sacrifice than, than was offered in Judaism. He is a greater high priest than all the high priests who have ever reigned. He has created a far greater temple within us than the temple that, that is still standing that is just about to be torn down in AD 70. And for all of those who hope in Christ, we will receive a far greater inheritance than anybody who trusts exclusively in the law of Moses. Now that we have the, 
the historical groundwork laid in our minds and in our hearts. Now, now let's read what this um, chapter actually says. And let's see if any light bulbs begin going off in our minds as we read it. Starting in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who has promised us is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to, to love and to good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Really, as we read this, two key words emerge mostly in my ears. First of all, as it says in verse 24, hold. It says hold fast. And what this means in the... the um, what this means in the original language is the idea that you have something very valuable in the palm of your hand. And it is so valuable to it that, that you're clenching it deep in the ball of your fist because you cannot afford to lose whatever that is. It reminds me of every time that Amanda and I have ever flown out of country. We've gone all over the place. And when you're at a foreign airport, you have to make sure that you have a passport in your hand. And I mean, I, I am so OCD about my passport. I mean, I will check it every 15 seconds just to make sure that I still have my passport. Why? Well, it's because without that passport, I'm stuck. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. And in the same way, we see what he's saying in verse 24, or there in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Jesus Christ without wavering. He says, hold fast. And yet the other key word that we really need to um, grasp and to comprehend it is in the verse itself in verse 25, where he says not, that we not abandon or forsake the assembly. What this means is literally to abandon someone or something or to desert, to utterly leave somebody all alone for the rest of their lives. It's, really, it's a word so um, strong and so violent that it's the word we hear Jesus saying. Screaming from the cross, God, God, why have you forsaken me? It's the exact same word that we hear Paul writing in the Corinthian letter. We have been persecuted, but we have not been abandoned. Or as Paul also says elsewhere, as he speaks about a man whose name is Demas, he has, he has deserted us, he has abandoned us, and he has left the work. This is what this means. Well, last week our sister Lori was not in Pennsylvania. She was at a wedding in another state. But that does not mean that, that Lori abandoned her family. It does not mean that, that, that just because she was not physically in the state of Pennsylvania, it does not mean that, that she's no longer a mother or a wife. It just means that she was away for a trip. And yet this is what happens so often in, um, here in the church when we just go to this, this one passage 
and we call people's Christianity in the question, he has abandoned Jesus, is what we're saying if we use this verse. It's a very strong and a striking... Um, um, it just has nothing to do with the other, really, is what I'm trying to say. When it says, not forsaking our, our own assembling together, this is not language which applies to a person who might occasionally miss a, um, a um, church service. It is not language which applies to a um, person who might have to work on a Wednesday night every now and then. But rather, these are Christians, either who are on the verge of abandoning Jesus, or have already made the choice that we're going to stop being Christians. Really, these are Christians who have completely given up meeting altogether. And have instead, some are now back in the synagogues, worshiping in that old covenant way, once again as Judaists. And so the writer is pleading with them. And he's saying in so many ways that if you abandon Jesus, you are signing your own spiritual death certificate. Or maybe in our own modern day language and vernacular, what he's saying in other words is that to reject Jesus and his sacrifice and to rely upon those 619 laws of Moses and those animal sacrifices, that would be like trading a private jet for a buggy that is attached to a dead horse. This is what is happening in the book of Hebrews. And so the writer is saying that the, he's saying that the old law, it served its purpose. And yet now because of Jesus and his sacrifice, now all of that is now made obsolete. And so he's pleading with them that if you go through with this and you abandon Jesus for the rest of your lives and you go back to Judaism, there is no more forgiveness for your sins. This is not about Sunday night and Wednesday night assemblies. The reason why Hebrews was written in the first place is, is to prevent this, this wide and extreme exodus from the church back right into where Jesus rescued them from. And so what is he saying all throughout this book? Don't give up on Jesus. Do not ever quit the Christian life. Do not go back to who you used to be before you heard this gospel. This is why all of this is being written. This, this is the context of the whole um, statement, not to forsake the assembly. And I cannot stress how imperative it is for you as well as for I that we read the text as much as we can, learn to read the text with a Hebrew spirit, with, with a mind that is yearning to, to really put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are being referred to in these sacred pages. And really the reason why he or she is writing all of these things in the book of Hebrews is because we know that the aftermath of doing just this, it is tragic. It is horrifying. As we go into verse 26, we, we come to yet another commonly misunderstood passage. And yet I think that, that now knowing exactly what the context is, this will no longer be a misunderstood proof text for us. Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, 
but rather a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is, of course, a reference to idolatry. And yet, verse 29, it says, How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then in verse 31, all of us know this verse, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is what happens when Christians go back to who they used to be. This is what happens when we go back to Egypt and we turn our backs on Jesus for the rest of our lives. And yet, how many people here have struggled with verses 26 through 31 at one time or another? I mean, I remember when I was younger, I would read this. And with an untrained eye, I actually thought that once I'm baptized, if I make one sin, if I sin one time intentionally, then, then I'm going to hell. I've met all kinds of people in the church who to this day have that belief that, that I have to be perfect. I, I mean, I can't make one sin. And yet with the context in mind, this is not just any sin being referred to here. If that were true, I mean, as I said, there would be nobody in heaven if that were true. But rather the sin that is mentioned here in verse 26, this is the um, sin really of denouncing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is that sin of abandonment and total rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the sin of relying on the law of Moses, on our old life, rather than on Christ Jesus. That is the sin referenced there. And as we see, it has a horrible chain reaction. And that's because if we abandon Jesus and we go back to who we used to be, Number one, it says we are trampling the Son of God underneath our feet. We are looking at the cross Jesus died on. We're looking at the blood that we just had celebrated. And we're seeing that as something that is commonplace or unholy. And he says that we have insulted God's Holy Spirit. I mean, all three of these things, they are very violent words that are expressing absolute abhorrence and and where a person no longer loves Jesus, they are, they, I mean, a poor Jesus. You see, what this communicates is, well, Christ's blood, it's really no different or, or, or no greater than, than um, horse blood or goat blood or any other animal blood that there is. And yet that's not even worst of all, though, because really the worst consequence of this is let's just imagine, let's ask this question. For all of these Christians who are going back into the synagogues, what does this communicate to all of those non-Christian Jews living in this time? See, what this is, is screaming to these people is, you guys were right. We suffer for absolutely no reason. You guys were absolutely right. Paul and Peter and James, they're all wrong. We gave Jesus a shot, but, 
but he is not the real Messiah. Jesus is an impotent Messiah. This is what this was communicating. It's, it's really the, the, the exact opposite of Saul of Tarsus. These Christians, these um, former Christians, they are confirming the skepticism of these non-Christian Jews. They are intensifying their unbelief of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so imagine what, what washed over me just a few days ago as I went to a website from, from our own church, really not specifically us, but of the Churches of Christ. And on this website, I read it very carefully. I read it with other people, and we all arrived at the same conclusion, that what this article was expressing was if you don't put on a suit and a dress twice every single Sunday and once every single Wednesday, if you don't do that every single time, then there's no more forgiveness for your sins. You are trampling Jesus Christ underneath your feet. You have fallen into the hands of a living God. And now, buddy, God is going to burn you for all of eternity. That's what our brothers and sisters are proclaiming to the entire world online. And it even said this, it said, withdraw from those sinners in your churches who don't come to every single meeting. Have nothing to do with them. And I felt like smashing a hole through that computer. I didn't do it because it, is, it belongs to our um, congregation here, so I didn't do that, Jerry, but, but I wanted to smash a hole right in the middle of it. I wanted to smash a spider web right in the middle of that laptop screen. And yet, I also had calmed down, though. And I realized that that's how I more or less used to actually think when I was younger. So I had some compassion for those brothers and sisters. But I mean, this is not even remotely what the spirit of this passage or context is communicating to us. You see, that extreme viewpoint... I believe, I mean, I would bet my life that that is the reason why so many churches are so empty this morning. It's because there are so many Christians who are so weary of, of walking into a worship service, wanting to praise God, wanting to love people, only to get yelled at and accosted. Well, you weren't here last Wednesday night. I don't care why you weren't here. You're going to hell, you know? I've known a lot of Christians who the only reason why they would actually come to church is because they were scared to death God was going to burn them in hell if they missed one worship service. I've known Christians who were only coming to a worship service every week just because they were guilt-tripped by other people. You've got to be there or else. And, and I mean, that's a horrible reason to come to a worship service. If it's going to be like that, I would rather not go to that church and just go anywhere else where there is love and truth being practiced, no matter where it is. And yet the most important question for us, why? Why do we come together? I mean, why are we doing this every single week? Is it that we come here so that we can keep score about our own attendance? Are we here to make a fashion statement every week? Are we here to critique the preacher or the elders? Are we here because this is how we earn our way through the pearly gates of heaven? 
Well, I, I love the reasoning of the Hebrew writer in verse 32, where he says a very beautiful word and a very wonderful image, where he says, remember. To these weary saints who, who have unbelief, he says, remember. Remember those former days when after you were enlightened about Jesus, um, there in other words, you endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. He says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And notice this, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting possession in heaven. We are here in part to remember what it was like that very first time we, we ever heard the gospel of Christ and it clicked in our mind. We must remember that, that very beautiful moment when we came up from the waters of baptism knowing that, oh my gosh, every single sin that I have ever committed, it is forgiven. It is washed away and it is history. And for these Christians here, whoever is writing this says, remember. Look back in that time in your life where where you had government authorities coming to your house. Your most treasured item and possession in this world, something that has been in your family four or five or six generations. And they said, we are here to collect on that. He says, remember how your response was. You want this? You want this right here? Would you like me to gift wrap it for you? If you want this, you can have this because this is not where my hope is. You can take away this, but you, you cannot take away my Jesus. He says, remember that. I imagine others here who would have heard this letter, he would also have them remember that time when their very lives had been threatened because they were Christians. He says, remember when your, how your very life had been threatened. And instead of being scared or, or um, having unbelief, your response was, you want to kill me? You said that you would kill me if I followed Jesus? Strike. Strike. You want to kill me? Do it. Do it right now. Because you can take my life. You can take my head. But no matter how hard you try, you will never take my inheritance in heaven. This is how these Christians once were. And he's saying, remember when that was you and get that back again. Because in a very short time, all of this is going to come to an end. Um, you know, brothers and sisters, I think the problem is a lot of the time. Our weakness is that we have a have-to Christianity. Or we wake up on Sunday morning thinking, oh man, I, I have to go to this worship service. I have to, to sing all of these songs. I have to live the Christian lifestyle. And yet that is to live in a black and white world. But where this thing really begins to be Christianity is when have-to Christianity becomes want-to Christianity. When we wake up in the morning and our attitude is, I get to go to a worship service this morning. 
I get to leave this house and live for Jesus everywhere that I go. I get to love every single person in my sight all day long. Until half to Christianity becomes get to Christianity, we're living in a black and white world. I don't know about you, but I want to live in a world of color. Um, in closing, as we saw a moment ago, our, our old lives who we used to be, our, our Egypt is calling out to us. And it just seems to be saying that, that you can live a life just for you all over again. You can wake up in the morning on a Sunday morning and have nothing to do. You can watch football game after football game after football game. You can go um, all day long and fish. I mean, you can, you, your entire life can be about you all over again. And all you got to do is get rid of Jesus. All you got to do is sign right here. And you can have your life back. And yet the Hebrew writer is saying, don't do that. He's saying it's not worth it. But what he is saying is, is, um, is hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to love. And hold fast to good works. There in verse 24 is really what the context of all of this is. Where he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good works. I mean, there's no shaming here, is there? There's no one who's being guilt-tripped into being there. We are here, yes, we are here to also worship God mainly, but we're also here to also stimulate each other, encourage each other, that we can get excited about loving God and loving people like we never have before. We are here to encourage each other that we can get excited about good works once again. This is Christianity. This is what it's all about. And so, walking into a church gathering, it is not about attendance records. It's not about shame. It's not about intimidation. This is purely about making everybody here want to continue living the Christian life. This is about not ever going back to who we used to be outside of Jesus. And that is our message here for this morning. Seeing black and white verses in color is life-changing for us.